Hello, friends, and thanks for subscribing to the Defining Marriage podcast. You'll get one chapter every week of my book, Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. Stick around afterwards for a little post-chapter discussion with me and special guests, including Barney Frank. On Defining Marriage, we trace the decades-long evolution of marriage through the personal stories of those who lived through it. Defining Marriage is the story of how people from all walks of life fought to change marriage and how fighting for marriage, in turn, changed them. Part 4. Making It Chapter 14. If not, great. Jenny Canalos was visiting her dad's house a few months before the November 2008 election when she saw the mailers. What is this, she said, pointing to a pile of campaign mailers, brochures, and stickers. They all sported the same friendly logo, a family of blue stick figures representing a man and a woman and two little kids. Oh, I don't know, he said. I just got it in the mail and it seemed like a nice sticker. Jenny started flipping through the materials and key phrases started jumping out at her. One man and one woman. Restore traditional marriage. Protect our children. Dad, she said, this is really bad. You have to vote against this. Jenny couldn't vote in that election herself. She grew up in San Marino, a well-heeled town tossed off to the side of Los Angeles, and there wasn't much keeping her in California since her grandmother, whom she had cared for, passed away. Her family had recently sold her childhood home, and all of her friends were on the East Coast. She landed a job working for Gary Marshall on his Happy Days musical, and when the show moved to Connecticut, she picked up and went with it in 2007, only returning to California for brief visits. It freaked Jenny out that her dad, a good man, would support the Prop 8 campaign without really knowing what it was. She wondered if she should stay in San Marino and volunteer for the No on 8 campaign. She wasn't terribly political herself. Her only previous activism had been as a child, joining her former hippie mother in a protest over a coastal Chevron pipeline. Nah, she figured. California is way too enlightened and smart, she told herself. They're never going to go for that. Jenny was soon back in New York and found herself pulled into a very different election battle. Rory O'Malley, a cute-as-a-button singer, dancer with a passion for politics, played Richie Cunningham in Happy Days and was Jenny's close friend. After moving east, he brought her to see some guy named Barack Obama speak at the Apollo Theater in Manhattan in 2007. You gotta check this guy out, he told her. After his home state of Ohio swung the 2004 election for George Bush, Rory was determined to make a difference in 2008. He told Jenny that he was planning to stay at his mom's house and volunteer for a few weeks between Broadway gigs. You should come, he said. Jenny figured that if she wasn't going to volunteer in her home state, at least she could volunteer in her best friend's home state. She drove on out to Cleveland to knock on doors by day and sleep at Rory's mom's house at night. They walked through the door of the campaign office as soon as they arrived in Ohio. We're here, Jenny told the staffer. We want to help. And that's how an unassuming suburban girl found herself directing a line of 80,000 people through the blocks of downtown Cleveland. It was one of Obama's pre-election mega-rallies, and Rory and Jenny were manning a line that started to form around 5 a.m. The rally wasn't scheduled to start for another 14 hours. Rory took the front of the line, Jenny took the rear, and over the course of the day, they moved farther and farther apart. Hour after hour, she guided tens of thousands of people into line, skipping over each crosswalk to leave the intersection clear before resuming the line on the other side of the street. As the hours were on and the line stretched further than she could see, Jenny grew nervous. Things were getting tense. At one point, a man threatened to punch her for not doing enough to prevent line cutting, single-handedly, amongst a throng of thousands. In the months leading up to the election, public demand for Obama's presence had grown to an intensity that would have been unthinkable for any other political candidate. He represented an escape from the misery brought on by the George W. Bush administration. Obama's slogan, Change We Can Believe In, looked like relief, at last, from a horrible war that nobody understood, an oncoming recession, domestic spying, and a disregard for all but the very rich and powerful. It wasn't just rhetoric that drew 80,000 people to downtown Cleveland. The 2008 Obama campaign ran more like a tech startup than a political party. A staff of hundreds developed sophisticated online tools to precisely target each communication down to the individual voter. Developers created a tool called Neighbor to Neighbor that showed volunteers exactly where on their street undecided voters lived. Precinct walkers could pop by for a friendly chat, then report back to headquarters about which voters were persuadable and on what issues. The campaign would send that data to phone bankers, sometimes thousands of miles away, for a follow-up phone call with finely targeted talking points. If you lived in a swing state, you basically had to resign yourself to Obama being the only topic of conversation for about a year leading up to the election. The line for Obama's Cleveland rally stretched for over a mile. Jenny and Rory did their best to maintain order as the crowd slowly oozed into Mall B and were finally able to slip in as the event got underway. Bruce Springsteen was the warm-up act, and then Obama came out with Michelle and his daughters. 
Ohio, I have two words for you. Two days, Obama called out to deafening cheers. You and I know that it is time to come together and change this country. Some of you may be cynical and fed up with politics. You have every right to be. But despite all of this, I ask of you what has been asked of Americans throughout our history. I ask you to believe, not just in my ability to bring about change, but in yours. It was just electric, said Jenny. We were so dazed and so happy. As the crowds drifted away that evening and the cleanup began, Jenny and Rory stood in shock by the stage. I can't believe that happened, she said. She just ushered tens of thousands of people into a rally with Bruce Springsteen and the man she was sure would become president in two days. Two days! Election day was nearly upon them. Yes, ma'am, Jenny told the caller. There will be someone on the way to come pick you up. What is your address? She was sitting at a desk in a bustling campaign office on election day, charged with organizing rides to polls. Voters would call in or get a friendly reminder if they needed a ride, and Jenny would locate a volunteer with a car who could retrieve them. For most of the day, it was just Jenny and Emily, another volunteer, working the phones. Everyone else was out knocking on doors, waving signs, and monitoring polling stations. I've never been more proud, she recalled of that day. There were all these people who had never voted, who were coming out to vote for the first time. After the Ohio polls closed that night and they sat back, exhausted for a moment, Emily perked up. Polls were still open in Nevada and Colorado. Let's get on the phone, Emily said. We gotta keep calling. Soon they were dispatching drivers in Las Vegas. Other volunteers started trickling back in now that Ohio voting was over. Rory appeared at some point to pull Jenny away from the phone bank, she'd been there for hours, and brought her back to his mom's house to relax and watch the returns. They were huddled around a TV with Rory's mom and aunt and cousins, all of whom had volunteered on the campaign, when CNN called the election and they all exploded into cheers. The next day, when they were heading back to New York, the reality of Prop 8 hit. Rory was driving back to the city and Jenny was in the passenger seat, stewing over the news from California instead of celebrating Obama. Turn the car around, she said. Let's just go to California. Let's just drive to California right now. We'll just have to get involved somehow and start working on this. Rory glanced over at her and kept a steady pace back to Manhattan. Jenny knew a road trip to California didn't make sense at that point, but it was hard to just do nothing, particularly after having won Ohio. A month earlier, she had just been some random girl who wandered into a campaign office, and now she was a master of Bruce Springsteen lines and Election Day dispatch. If they could help swing Ohio for Obama, surely there was some role they could play in winning the fight to marriage. That high she felt from the campaign was like nothing she'd ever experienced. We did it. We made a difference, she said, turning her attention to the city looming on the road in front of them. Let's do it again. Let's help something else now. But of course, there was no campaign office for being outraged about Prop 8 and no phone bank to join. There was a Join the Impact rally and a march on a Mormon temple and lots of angry shouting. And then there was a meeting at the center. A few nights after the election, New York City's LGBT center swelled with several hundred people for a panel discussion on marriage. This was what Jenny and Rory had been waiting for. Finally, someone would tell them what to do. It would be just like the Obama campaign office all over again, and they were sure they'd be put to work calling people and knocking on doors. But that's not what happened. Instead, representatives from various LGBT groups sat in front of the crowd and took turns explaining why Prop 8 wasn't their fault, that there was nothing they could have done, and that it happened on the other side of the country for crying out loud, so just relax. Jenny walked away from the meeting in shock and starting to feel a little mad. What was wrong with these people? You just had three to four hundred people in a room, she fumed to Rory, and not one of them said, this is what you can do tomorrow to help the movement. Nobody told us what to do. We were going there saying, what do we do? Someone please tell us what to do. You could go to an Obama campaign office and someone would hand you a phone bank list, or they would hand you a thing to go knock on doors. But as the meeting was winding down, she heard something promising. Some guy off to the side said, I'm going to try to organize something. We're doing a Facebook thing. Jenny perked up. This is the guy we need to talk to, she said. They introduced themselves, and a few days later, Jenny and Rory sat down for breakfast with Gavin Creel at the Westway Diner on 9th and 44th near Theater Row. Like Rory, Gavin had grown up in suburban Ohio, moved to Manhattan to pursue a career on the stage, and had recently experienced a political awakening. This one came on a boat, courtesy of Rosie O'Donnell. At the time, Rosie had created a cruise series called Our Family Vacations, a family-friendly trip around New England and Canada that was heavy on Broadway performances and piano bars. It was basically a floating theater camp. Seth Rudetsky was the musical director and had called Gavin one day out of the blue. Somebody dropped out. Do you want to come? He asked. You just have to sing one song at one show, and then you get to go to the Caribbean for free for a week. Sign me up, said Gavin. 
He'd never been particularly open about being gay. It wasn't secret. His family and friends knew. But as an actor and musician, he was scared that being publicly out would ruin his career. That wasn't as crazy a fear as it might sound. The door was open for gay men on Broadway, but generally not in the kind of roles that Gavin, with his leading man face and cute charisma, would be up for. Successful gay actors might find themselves typecast. For example, Harvey Firestein had just won a Tony for playing a role originated by Divine in Hairspray the previous year. I just felt like I was going to be exceptional, he said, like I was going to be the one that the world would turn against. Like, they're okay with those other people over there, but when I say it, they're going to get mad, get furious. Rory's attitude was a little different. Life comes before the business, he told the advocate. Maybe some actors haven't gotten a role because they came out, but who gives a shit if you aren't happy? Standing on the pier, waiting to board the ship with a gang of gay parents and their kids, Gavin's heart started to pound. I felt like we should not be out, be seen in public, he recalled. Something's going to happen. Somebody's going to shoot us or something awful. But something changed as they cruised out of New York Harbor, the blocky arches of the Verrazano Bridge looming before them. Standing on the deck, Gavin looked up into the beautiful blue summer sky and the metal lattice belly of the bridge overhead. Then he looked back down and saw kids splashing in a pool, parents in bathing suits, and a DJ spinning as Billy Porter, the actor who played early in Dreamgirls, belted New York, New York. He saw gay families relaxing, unashamed, unafraid, and happier than he'd ever allowed himself to feel. We're leaving our lives, he thought, as they crossed the threshold of the bridge. We're allowed to be who we are. The rest of the week was a magical blur. Everyone had a smile, and his fears about being out were hard to even remember. It all seemed too perfect to be true. I looked around, and I saw all those people on that vacation boat for a week, he said. They were allowed to just be themselves and have their bratty kids and deal with tantrums and fun games and things like that. It just made me realize that... It seems foolish to even say this, but that was the moment when I realized there's nothing wrong with me. There's absolutely nothing wrong with me. When he sailed back under the bridge a week later, he was changed. He wasn't coming back to his old life. That was gone. Now he asked his friends to start taking him to gay bars and dance clubs, to usher him into being honest and open with the world. He laughed when he recalled how his friends had to hold his hand at first. It was like learning to walk, a little scary, but more comfortable as he went along. Coming Out opened up new creative opportunities for Gavin, starting with a song called For Nancy that was a coming-out confession to his mother. He had a moment's hesitation when he realized what he was saying out loud. There's a road that's divided in two, all of us here have to find. Most everyone goes the same way as you, just love me as I go mine. I was still very private, he said. I didn't want it to affect my fucking career and all that stupid shit. Even though there was nothing explicitly gay in the song, he knew what the words meant, and his mother would. And it wouldn't be hard for others to figure out the meaning behind lyrics like, Don't be alarmed, Mom. Don't be ashamed. Ultimately, he decided, I'm not going to apologize for myself. He made For Nancy the first track on his debut album. Soon, he started getting calls from fans thanking him for the song. I came out to my mom, said one, and we played your song, and we both cried in the car. Another said, I listened to the song, and I just think I'm going to be all right. With that song, Gavin had managed to capture the moment under the Verrazano when he saw that there was nothing wrong with him. The taste of freedom that he felt on that cruise didn't have to be a taste. It could be a banquet that lasted for the rest of his life. And with a song, he could invite others to join him. But he needed more. Art is nice, but in the wake of Prop 8, Gavin realized that for so many people, those feelings of shame and doubt and fear stemmed from unjust laws. Singing about acceptance was a good start, but now it was time for action. Jenny and Rory agreed. Sitting there at the Westway Diner, they bonded over their shared experiences. Gavin casting off the closet, Jenny and Rory plunging into an election. They'd all just had the experience of envisioning the world as they wished it to be, forging a path and seeing it become a reality. That felt amazing, and they wanted more. They knew that marriage bans, whether Prop 8 in California or the Straits-only domestic relations law in New York, stood in opposition to the freedom they'd all just discovered. They had to do something, but had no idea what. So they started by approaching some of the larger organizations, like the Human Rights Campaign and Empire State Pride Agenda. We said, where do theater people go? What should we do? Rory recalled in an interview with Playbill. And they said, do what everybody else does. Write your letters. There was nothing specific for the theater community and how they should get involved. And we were like, we think that we're capable of a lot more than just showing up like everybody else. The theater community is so powerful. Okay, said Jenny. She'd been to the Join the Impact rallies and had an idea. We'll be Broadway Impact. We'll organize people and make an impact on Broadway. The three of them gathered at Gavin's apartment at 2 a.m. a week after Prop 8 passed and cobbled together a logo. That felt like a good first step. Then one of them caught wind of a marriage equality bill inching forward through the legislature in Albany. Its chances looked good, but there were still too many legislators who hadn't committed to voting one way or another. Jenny had an idea. 
If we could get a hundred letters written to the Senate Majority Leader, that would be great, she told the others. They started working their theater connections. At the time, Gavin was preparing for a lead role in Hare at the Al Hirschfeld Theater, and Rory had just finished appearing in the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. As a spunky young lady with a keen style and sharp wit, Jenny was beloved by half the gay men in New York. The theater world was their oyster, or at least the backstage areas were. Jenny, Rory, and Gavin punched holes in postcards, and each wore one around their neck bearing a sample message to a state senator. Dear Senator Smith, I care about marriage equality. Then they'd drop by theaters between shows and hand out a stack to the cast and crew. Like love letters from the Broadway community, Gavin described them. Everywhere she went, Jenny had postcards and sharpies in her purse. She'd drop by a theater on Saturdays and arrange impromptu postcard signing parties. They wandered theater lobbies after shows ended. They'd drop off 40 cards at a theater door, then pick them up the next day. They crawled through piano bars, thrusting cards at patrons to fill out. Jenny's here from Broadway Impact, drag queens grew used to announcing. They invaded Super Bowl parties, pausing the game until the cards were complete. Maybe if you get five or ten people drunk at a bar, you're lucky, said Jenny. Little by little, we collected these. Finally, in April of 2009, they delivered a box of 3,000 cards to the office of Senate Majority Leader Malcolm Smith. He wasn't there to receive them. Okay, great, said a staffer. You can put them here. Was that it? They stuck around a while, explaining why marriage equality was so important. Low-level staffers nodded sympathetically. At least they're hearing from people, said Jenny afterwards. A vote on the marriage bill was still vaguely scheduled sometime in the future, maybe that summer. Finishing the postcard project felt good, but it left an activism-sized hole in their lives. We have to do something, Rory said. At the time, a revival of hair had just opened and was fueling Gavin's drive to change the world, sucking him into the show's radical 60s spirit. The show is so much more than a piece of entertainment, he told me. We were sitting in stiff chairs in the back of a church that had been converted into a theater, but he was leaning forward and describing hair so energetically that he was nearly hovering in midair. His sentences started blurring together with enthusiasm. It was a call out to the world that was hopeful because of Obama, and then angry because of two active wars, and then all these dead veterans that we're sending home, and, and when Bush was in office, and then we're sitting on stage saying, black, white, yellow, red, copulate in a king-sized bed, and this whole movement of what hair was... The show had opened at just the right moment, tapping into popular frustration at the establishment and idealizing freedom, peace, and liberation. They were ideals that absorbed Gavin completely, and the upcoming legislative vote on marriage was a perfect chance to put them to work. This is what we preach about every night, he exclaimed, his voice echoing back and forth down the marble hall. A few months earlier, one of the state's leading LGBT organizations sent a group to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge and hold up rainbow umbrellas in a show of, well, a show of something— the message wasn't quite clear. Jenny had the idea that they might invite the cast of hair to replicate the stunt on the ticket steps in Times Square, saying, let the sunshine in, and maybe get a local news station to send a camera to cover the breaking news story that theater people are supportive of gay rights. That sounded promising to Gavin and Rory, so they ran it by Tom Viola, head of the HIV-AIDS advocacy group Broadway Cares. Okay, well, we'll need a stage, Tom began. Oh God, thought Gavin, this was going to be more complicated than they had expected. What followed were ten days of intense planning, with each new idea growing larger and larger. Before long, the small chorus had become a full-on concert. Street closure permits were issued, politicians heard about their plans and asked to be included. It was 2 a.m. the night before the event, when Jenny found Rory at his computer and delivered the news. Rory, she said, the governor's coming. Oh my God, he replied, exhausted. I want to remember this moment forever. Five thousand people showed up the next day. My name is David Patterson, and I came here today seeking justice, the governor bellowed into the crowd, following a few songs from the cast of hair. Gavin stood behind him, wearing a yellow peace sign headband and several strings of beads. Rainbow flags were painted on his cheek. I believe this is the year that we can make history, Mayor Michael Bloomberg told the crowd. So we started doing Broadway night phone banking, said Jenny. This was a return to our element, gathering volunteers together to call strangers. Only this time, the callers were the stars of Broadway shows. The novelty of it drew large crowds to the phone bank, and they were able to recruit even more volunteers from the curious onlookers. There were only a few weeks left in the legislative session to pass the marriage bill. All summer we did phone banking, Jenny recalled. Obviously, her voice lowered. That vote didn't go well. Jeff Cook had a front row seat to the vote on the marriage bill. The 32-year-old lobbyist practically lived at the state capitol and had worked on New York's non-discrimination bill on behalf of the gay Republican group the Log Cabin Republicans. He was a lifelong GOPer, and some of his earliest political memories were of listening to Bill Clinton pandering to conservative voters on Christian radio by bragging about his signing of the Defense of Marriage Act. Jeff was in charge of managing the Republican votes for the marriage bill in Albany. 
The Democrats had recently taken control of the legislature, which meant that in order to pass the bill, his colleagues would need to secure nearly every Democrat's vote. Jeff would have to supply three Republicans. That seemed achievable. Just three. How hard could it be? Sure, their party had traditionally opposed equality for LGBTs, but surely the conservative team leading the Prop 8 lawsuit provided some political cover, as did the massive rallies that demonstrated public support. But Republican lawmakers, he discovered, were convinced that the bill would never make it to the floor. And even if it did, they figured the Democrats would never have the votes to pass it. Why bother sticking your neck out for a bill that wasn't going to pass? He got plenty of promises, of course. If you get close enough where our three votes can make a difference, we'll vote to pass the bill. But they're never going to put the vote on the floor, and they're never going to pass the vote, said one legislator. It's easy to say you'll take a risk when you're sure you won't actually have to. There weren't exactly profiles in courage from the Republicans, Jeff said. They thought it was clear the whole time that it wasn't going to happen. Jenny's postcards hadn't made as much of an impact as she'd hoped. But Jeff tried his best to keep an optimistic outlook. His Democratic counterparts kept promising that the votes on their side were there, and when the bill finally went to the floor on a Wednesday afternoon in December of 2009, he sat nervously in the balcony staring down at the legislators. He'd done everything he could. Now it was up to them. This legislation would merely provide me and tens of thousands of other New Yorkers with equal rights in New York State, Senator Thomas Duane said, rising to introduce the bill. It would make me equal in every way to everyone else in this chamber. Hours of debate followed. Senator Ruben Diaz read aloud the names of states where voters had rejected marriage equality. Senator Eric Adams counted with the names of states that had allowed slavery, pointing out that they had cited religion as justification. Senator Jeffrey Klein spoke about a friend who wasn't allowed to sit at the deathbed of his partner of 25 years. Senator Ruth Hassel Thompson described how her gay brother was ostracized from the family, something she had never discussed publicly before. I've spoken on this floor many times, and I've never been quite so nervous, said Senator Diane Savino. Not because I'm not sure of my position, because I'm not sure what's going to happen. She gestured to Senator Duane. I've never been able to maintain a relationship of the length and the quality that Tom Duane and Lewis have, she said. This is a relationship that I envy, that all of us should envy. I was just praying that some miracle would happen, Jeff said, and people would vote their conscience. But it wasn't to be. As Jeff stared down from the balcony above the legislators, he watched as a handful of Republican lawmakers looked up to him, made momentary eye contact, and then hung their heads as they voted no. Many of them felt like they were doing the wrong thing, Jeff said, but they did it anyway. It was really painful. The final vote was 38 to 24. Not even close. I was angry, said Jeff. Anger, shock, and frustration. That was an incredible motivator. But he couldn't let it show. He had to pick himself up the next day, drive back to the Capitol, and meet with the people who had just voted against his freedom to marry. You internalize your anger, he said, and you live vicariously through the anger of others. In the aftermath of the vote, he hated going to Albany. It ate away to him that he had been forced to go room to room, begging legislators to treat him and his family equally, and that no one seemed to have cared. That's hard to do, day after day, he said, to ask people to treat you the same. Jenny was mad, too. This was a different kind of pain from the passage of Prop 8. It was an attack in her own state, directed towards her friends and the cause to which she dedicated the last few months. It stung, but she wasn't going to stand for it. It was great, she said, because then we knew who voted no, and we could start going after those people. And so began a two-year campaign to oust their enemies, Democrats and Republicans, and replace them with supportive legislators. The process was slow, arduous, and, most of all, expensive. Two more years of postcards, two more years of fundraising, two more years of political deal-making in Albany. Jenny, Rory, and Gavin kept the pressure going at a grassroots level, coordinating phone banks in an SEIU building in Midtown. After the loss, something felt different, Jenny sensed. The volunteers were smarter now, more practiced, more intense. Through Broadway Impact, they'd managed to recapture the optimism of the Obama campaign, and now they were learning what to do when it turns out optimism isn't enough. Listening to Gavin and Rory and Jenny and Jeff describe their feelings in the aftermath of the vote, I recognized what they felt. Anger. Not a blind fury, but a determined, productive anger, like that of a parent defending a child, or a runner intent on defeating their own physical limitations. It's a feeling that I was starting to feel towards James. I was still head over heels for him, of course. I loved every moment we spent together, with the possible exception of the times he dropped dirty clothes on the floor. But after he returned from Stockholm in 2009, I was struck by a bewildering tension. We'd sit on the couch together, watching reruns of The Golden Girls, and my mind would wander to how lucky I felt to have him in my life. And for some reason, thinking about us made me tremble and hyperventilate like I never had before. My heart would race. My speech became a quiet stutter. His touch made me freeze. 
What's the matter? He'd ask. Just tired, I guess, I said, as if that was something that happens when people are tired. I really had no idea. Was I having a stroke repeatedly and only brought on by feelings of romance? Years later, when I described the feeling to a therapist, he guided me through my thought process. My relationship with James had stressed me out because I was terrified that it might go away, and I thought that a marriage was the only thing that could keep it secure. James's refusal to marry was standing in the way of that security. This was an insane paradox, and it was no wonder it was making me crazy. I was in a relationship that was perfect in every way, except for the other person in it. But my therapist didn't think this was all bad. Anger can be good, he said. You're feeling defensive about your relationship, and that means you value it. Anger is a reaction in defense of the divine. Halfway through rolling my eyes at that, I suddenly realized that what he was saying was correct. Oh, anger. This must be what it feels like to be angry. I'm not easily provoked to anger, and can count on one hand the number of times I've been so furious that I shouted. Among them, being accused of making incorrect change by a customer after I had clearly counted it out loud. I wasn't particularly well-suited to that job. The sensation was so unfamiliar to me that I didn't even know what it was when it was happening, and it was only several years later that I came to terms with it. Back in 2010, like Jeff and the Broadway Impact folks, all I knew is that it was something that I could channel into hard work. My obsession with marriage had taken me down a new rabbit hole, producing weekly YouTube videos about the week's marriage equality news. Every Monday, I posted a video recapping what was happening in New York, or California, or Maine, or whatever other state was considering equality. It was a ridiculous amount of unpaid work, but it had become my obsession. At the time, I just took it as a given that my chief motivation was to defeat the opponents of equality. Looking back, that was definitely a component but I think my anger at James for not proposing might have kept me going as well. James had returned from Europe as crazy for me as always, full of hugs and stories and strange Swedish candy. He also bore a commitment to me that was deeper than ever, which he demonstrated in his own peculiar ways. While I folded laundry in the bedroom one night, he drifted into that nebulous haze that comes right before sleep. I love you, I told him, and he replied, Walrus. Unexpected though it was, I considered this a correct response. Before long, my videos caught the attention of Chad Griffin at AFER, and he invited me to Los Angeles to ask if I'd like to work on the Prop 8 trial. Yes, I answered. Oh, God, yes, I would very much like that indeed. To have marriage taken away and then have an opportunity to win it back in the company of giants was an unbelievable opportunity. It's through working for Chad that I met the Broadway Impact folks. After the marriage bill failed in 2009, Jenny and friends approached AFER with a new idea. They'd gather their Broadway connections yet again to stage a play about the Prop 8 trial. It could be a fundraiser for the trial itself, which would cost millions of dollars, and also an awareness raiser about marriage in general. Chad loved the idea, and before long he had Dustin Lance Black toiling away on a script, and me ensconced in a Hollywood office, formatting a playbill for a Broadway show and shaking my head in disbelief that this was my life now. James, to his immense credit, went along with all this marriage mania, joining me in a move from San Francisco to Los Angeles. This was what you might call a big ask on my part. Neither of us was a capable driver, and we both suffered allergies exacerbated by the poisonous L.A. air. San Francisco was a city of parks and neighborhoods. L.A. seemed to be a metastasized strip mall. We both thrived in wet weather, nature, and counterculture, for which Los Angelinos seemed to have little appreciation. San Francisco felt like home. L.A. felt uninhabitable. There was only one thing that could bring James to L.A., and that was me. It wasn't a marriage, but maybe it was better— I couldn't ask for clear proof that he was with me for the long haul. If I was going to endure a self-imposed sentence in the worst city in America, I'd rather do it with James than with a piece of paper. Despite the failure of the 2009 vote, Jeff Cook became Jeff Cook McCormick shortly thereafter. We don't recognize the power of the government to determine the validity of our marriage, he said. They couldn't obtain a license in New York when his partner Tony proposed, but that didn't matter. We decided we were getting married in New York despite what the state legislature did. Throughout his engagement, the lobbying continued with an eye toward another vote in 2011. Now, when he spoke to legislators about the importance of marriage, he wasn't talking about a hypothetical gay couple or far-off plans that he might make with his boyfriend. Now he was talking about his own fiancée and his own freedom to marry the man he loved. That reframed the context for Jeff, and also for the Republicans to whom he spoke. Republicans don't speak the same language as Democrats, he learned. Democrats will respond to language about equality. Republicans are more likely to respond to language about freedom. Another key concept for Republicans? Family. What motivates us to marry the person we love isn't benefits, Jeff told them, speaking about his own plans to marry. We want to make a lifelong commitment to someone we love because we embrace the value of love, commitment, and sacrifice. And isn't that what marriage is about? 
not gender. This was a bit of a revelation for Republican lawmakers who had always just assumed that gay couples held a bizarre or unseemly definition of marriage. Meeting Jeff and hearing about his engagement redefined what they understood gay couples to be, and redefined the relationships they sought. Suddenly, in their minds, the definition of gay marriage was the same as the definition of their own marriages. Drawing an arbitrary distinction for queers no longer made any sense. Jeff found himself making new inroads with this line of thinking, and learned that if he could just stifle his anger for a little while longer, a charm offensive would be much more effective. I've got a crazy idea," he told Senate Majority Leader Dean Skelos at lunch one day. "You guys are making the case that you can run this chamber in a functional way, and that you'll allow issues to see the light of day that you might not personally support. Why not make marriage one of those issues?" Dean thought about it. Jeff, he said, "I would do that." The Broadway Impact phone banks were helping too. Month after month, they gathered together to place calls. The system was ingenious. They'd reach a potential supporter, and if the person favored marriage equality or could be persuaded, the phone bank would initiate a three-way call right then and there with their legislator's office. That way, citizens could express support for a marriage bill without having to place a call themselves. Occasionally, entire Broadway casts would descend on the phone bank en masse. The actors from Wonderland stopped by just a few hours after the show closed, and Nikki James from the Book of Mormon brought a crowd over from the Tony nominees' luncheon to place some calls. The women in cocktail dresses and the men in tuxedos. It was incredible, Gavin said, and I hate phone banking. Thanks to conversations like these, the prospects in the legislature steadily improved throughout 2010 and into 2011. On the night of June 24, when the Marriage Equality Act finally came up for a vote, they needed 33 votes in the Senate. After skin of their teeth election and intensive lobbying, the marriage bill had managed to accumulate 31 supporters. Could it scrape together two more in the final hours? Everyone had their eyes on Albany that night. The Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village displayed a live stream from Albany to a crowd of a thousand that spilled out onto the street. And at the Book of Mormon, Rory O'Malley could barely focus on playing Elder McKinley. I was a terrible actor that night, he recalled. Every time he left the stage, a crew member would hand him his phone so he could frantically check for updates and then run back on. He even asked if the show could hold the curtain at intermission so he wouldn't miss the vote. They declined. At one point, he was supposed to deliver a line about twenty Africans, and the words "twenty senators" nearly slipped out before he caught himself. Tensions mounted as the evening wore on, and other bills came and went. Out in the halls, protesters hollered dueling chants at each other. According to some accounts, around 7 p.m., Senate Democrats huddled together and agreed to skip the debate so that the vote would coincide with 11 p.m. newscasts. Senator Kevin Parker, annoyed that he wouldn't be able to give a speech about his vote, claimed that he tried to leave the chamber only to find that the governor's staff had locked the lawmakers in. Jeff was scared to death. He remembered the vote from 2009 and was terrified that someone would get cold feet and one of their ostensible supporters would turn and vote against the bill, against him. But there were some promising signs. Linda Soland, the wife of Senator Steve Soland, ran into Jeff in the hallways. "Oh my God, Jeff, this is so wonderful, isn't it?" she beamed. A longtime supporter of marriage equality, she would only have come to Albany if it meant her husband was about to make history. "It's so great to see you," Jeff gasped. It was around 10 p.m. that the vote finally happened. A hushed audience waited from the gallery as one by one the votes ticked up. Eyes thirty-three, Senate Secretary Frank Patience finally announced, nays twenty-nine. The gallery erupted in a roar as Jeff sat back, wide-eyed and euphoric, and Jenny simply posted the words, "I think I might pass out" on Facebook. The screams in the legislature went on for about a minute, eventually giving way to a chant of "USA" as the speaker uselessly pounded his gavel for order. I grew up with a dream of getting married and having a family, Jeff said. In the moments after the vote, what really shocked me was the sense of the weight being lifted. The weight of the government having its finger on the scale of treating him as less deserving was gone. He could go home to his husband and plan their marriage, their legal marriage. His phone rang the next morning. It was one of the Republican senators who had voted against the bill. He said he wanted to see how Jeff was doing. "I'm doing great, Senator," Jeff said. "Couldn't be better." "I just wanted you to let you know," the senator stammered. "I was really helpful behind the scenes, but I just couldn't vote for it." I really would have preferred if you had voted for it, Jeff said. But I'm grateful to your conference for putting it on the floor. They had a few more awkward, polite words, said goodbye, and hung up. That night, he got a second call from the same senator while at a celebratory dinner with Tony, his soon-to-be legal husband. Jeff excused himself to take the call. I need to apologize to you, the senator said. What I told you earlier wasn't right. I should have voted for the bill, and frankly, I'm ashamed of myself for not having done so. Jeff could hear that he was starting to cry. I've never seen my wife and daughter disappointed in me like I saw when I got home. It broke my heart that I had the opportunity to do the right thing, and I failed to do it. 
That's when Jeff knew that things had changed forever. Not only had Republicans played key roles in winning marriage, but those who had failed to take part now felt regret. Focusing on freedom had worked for them in New York, and now Jeff was ready to export that strategy to other states. New Hampshire had recently passed a marriage bill, but incoming Republicans were threatening to repeal it. This would prove a crucial test of the freedom strategy. It's about a greater issue than marriage. It's not even about marriage, Jenny told me. It's about having the right to have marriage. If you want to get married, you can. If not, she laughed. Great. Her laugh startled me, because if not was a possibility I was starting to consider for the first time in my life. James and I had been living in Los Angeles for about a year at that point, as I slogged away on the Prop 8 trial. My job had me knee-deep in marriage equality and rubbing elbows with community leaders who'd been fighting for marriage since before I could walk. Every day in the AFER office was devoted to marriage, and when I came home to James, it was strangely comforting to set the cause aside, make dinner, play a video game, and make each other laugh. The country needed that right that Jenny described, the freedom to get married, or to not. At work, there was lots more to be done. At home, I had everything I wanted. Everyone could see victory looming on the horizon. By 2010, public opinion, legal strategy, and political will were unmistakably pointing toward full federal equality within a few years. But as the culmination of the cause drew close, my craving for a proposal was starting to wane. I do enjoy the serenade every week. It's it's not often that you sing an actual song to me. That's not true. I've been singing Gloria to you for <laughs> months. I've been hearing Gloria over and over and over. I, so I guess I'm glad that you've you've moved on to the lovely uh, '40s dance hall song, the royalty free, the royalty free podcast yes. music. I would rather hear you just mutter royalty free music than Gloria. Oh my God, how many times have I heard Gloria in the last three days? All right, I'll switch over to Baba Black Sheep. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, Turkey in the Straw would also be good. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this week's all about New York. We've jumped from California to New York, the, the, the other important state. If marriage can make it there, it can make it anywhere. <laughs> so New York was a, was a big deal because uh, of the population. It's the fourth most populous state after California, Texas, and Florida. Is that because when everyone from New York gets old, they go to Florida? Yes, I think they just shift their population over. And Texas, I mean, most of the population there is just cows. So uh, New York was a difficult battle. New York was a difficult battle. It was a long time coming for that uh, for that victory that we finally got. But it was a big deal because uh, suddenly marriage looked a lot more possible to people. You know, folks have been thinking for a long time, well, they lost it in California. I don't know if it's going to happen. This is a long way away. Uh, this was a major milestone. So marriage was possible for people for whom there were previously significant obstacles. I'm in Congress, it's back and forth. It's hard for a relationship to develop. Hark, that's a familiar voice. Who is that? Yes, uh, my name is Barney Frank. I uh, was a member of the U.S. House from 1981 to 2013, and uh, I did a lot of work on LGBT issues. Congressman Frank had been with his partner Jim for years, uh, but they hadn't been married. Because work got in the way. I met him. We really started dating late in 2006, early in 2007 in a major way. And uh, my ability to date him coincided with becoming chairman of the Financial Services Committee. And he was very supportive and, you know, and, and dealing with a major financial crisis, etc. So given my chairmanship and, and the enormous emotional and, 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 and other demands that put on me, Starting a marriage at the same time would not have been a good idea. It didn't diminish our relationship. We were together a lot. But it really wasn't until 2011. Frankly, it was when the Republicans won the 2010 election. I was no longer to be chairman. Then I could begin to think about non-chairman aspects of my life. So at the same time that marriage was legalized in New York, that's when Barney and Jim started talking about having a wedding of their own. It, it, it was an emotionally reinforcing thing. I mean, I, we got married in July of 2012. By that time, I had already decided not to be running for re-election. Uh, so my life was changing uh, for the better in terms of the personal side. By the time I got married, I, was, I had no campaign obligations and not much left of a legislative obligation. So I had much more time to devote to, uh, to, to us. We were able to start living together much more. I mean, I, I gave up my, you know, I was living in three places, my, the district I represented in Massachusetts, Washington, and uh, Jim's home in Maine. The month I got married was the month I gave up the apartment in Washington. Starting a marriage when I could not have, when we could not have been together, more than an average of, you know, two nights a week would not have been a good idea. And I asked him if marriage is something that he'd previously considered for himself. 
And by the way, when it, I, don't, I don't do a lot of hypothetical thinking. As long as it seemed impossible for me, I didn't think about it. I mean, I don't think about what it would be like if I could fly because I can't and I won't. And But I, I rarely think about, oh, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could do this or that when I think there's no chance of doing it. So marriage suddenly becoming possible, whether it's because of a change in career or a change in the law, that's a big, big deal. And, and that's why the New York victory had this sort of rippling effect out from just that one state. It was so visible. It was 20 million people that suddenly got the freedom to marry. So across the country, I think a lot of people had a reaction, like Congressman Franks, that this wasn't possible before. I didn't really think about it as much as I could, but now it is possible. Finally, it's something within reach. A huge number of people are getting equal treatment. Maybe I deserve equal treatment, too. So the visibility of the New York marriages was so important, both in turning public opinion and also showing LGBTs they're entitled to equality. I asked uh, Congressman Frank if his decision to marry, to be the first sitting member of Congress to marry a same-sex partner, caused any controversy at the time. So yeah, it did turn out to be very controversial. A lot of my colleagues were mad that they weren't invited. We'll be hearing more from Congressman Frank in uh, some upcoming episodes. Uh, But for now, your questions. I question what it would be like if Barney Frank could fly. Oh, it would be wonderful. Can you imagine just swooping in from the heavens and chirping merrily? For some reason in my vision, he's, he's an actual bird. I see. I see. It's not necessarily that Barney Frank can fly. It's that he's become a bird and he always flies away. Yes. Yes. Indeed, it is question time. And my first question for you is this. There was a Happy Days musical? Yeah, there was. You weren't aware of that? Absolutely not. When did that happen? Oh, 2005-ish on. I don't know if it's still going on. Um... I actually don't even know when the songs were, because I, I never actually heard it. But yeah, I remember when that happened. It was part of, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia. And uh, Who played the Fonz? I do not know. Was there a Mork? Oh my goodness, I don't know. This is uh, These are excellent questions. Laverne and Shirley? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just, I want to assume that they all reprised their roles from the original series, but uh, that seems unlikely. I mean, can you imagine how amazing it would be to see uh, original Fonz, original Henry Winkler up on stage singing? Would the premise there be that they have aged and it's now the 90s or? Uh, I would kind of enjoy because they never looked like their actual age on the show. So uh, I would kind of be into seeing um, Henry Winkler and, oh goodness, I've forgotten her name, Cindy... Cindy Williams, as her, uh, I can remember Cindy Williams's name, but I can't remember anything useful in my own life, <laughs> as at playing high school students, as though it's still, we're still in the 1950s. And would there be a holographic Tom Bosley? Yes. Oh, Is he dead? He might not be dead. I'm fairly certain he's not in the best of health, which could mean dead. <laughs> That's not the best of health. You talked about Rory and Jenny's sort of adventures campaigning for Obama and how there was this grassroots groundswell. Did you say 80,000 people? There was some crazy number of people went to a rally that they had to manage the crowds for. Mm -hmm. Does Obama at that point in 2008 seem at all analogous to Bernie Sanders today? I forget that you you missed some of the Obama stuff because you were out of the country. Um, But yeah, the, the fervor for Obama, I think... It was probably at at this point in 2007, before that that election, Obama probably seemed like as much of a long shot as Bernie Sanders. Uh, with I mean, they're very different candidates because Bernie Sanders has been in politics since forever. Barack Obama, I think, crucially seemed younger. Um, but you know, there's they're still running as as outsiders, the guys you never heard of. Obama had something really important, though. I think he came around at just the right moment to be like, things have been really, really bad, and now I'm giving you some optimism. Uh, I don't know that optimism is the first word I would choose for Bernie's, the atmosphere that he conjures. But I'd say the excitement is, is pretty analogous. Do you think that Bernie Sanders, after that rush of optimism that came with Obama, that Bernie Sanders is perhaps a sobering, like, okay, we had the optimism, we had the excitement, now we have to roll up our sleeves and actually get some work done. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's accurate. I mean, Barack also, you know, was was a reaction to just how miserable people were about George Bush because of the war and because of the economy and because of a billion things. But, uh, you know, it was, it was like we discussed on, on a previous chapter, when something makes people mad, they are likely to uh, act out in some way. And, and people were real mad about George Bush. I don't know that people are as mad today as they were in 2007. Oh, I think a certain sector of the country is pretty mad. Yeah, but they're not Bernie supporters. That's correct. And which explains the current Republican frontrunner. 
It does, doesn't it? Perhaps that's more analogous to Obama, oh, no. which is troubling, isn't it? Yeah, Trump's the Obama of 2016? In some respects. Okay. Well, uh, let's move on before I start to cry. <laughs> After Prop 8, Jenny and Rory went to a rally uh, where leaders of the major gay organizations spoke, correct? Yeah, but I want to set the stage here because rally is not the right word for it. Rally suggests excitement and, and emotion and fervor. Um, the thing that happened after Prop 8 was a lot of very sober town hall meetings, which is people sitting in uncomfortable chairs in cold rooms, fuming and being resentful at people sitting before them at folding tables who are making excuses. So rally is not the word I would use. Coming out of that meeting, they wanted somebody to tell them what to do next. And it sounds like nobody was in a position to do that. Why hadn't the major organizations come up with a contingency for what they would do if Prop 8 passed? Like a list of here's what you can do next that they could just have ready for people? I think there are two answers to that. One is the uh, the California organizations that were involved in Prop 8 they had a contingency, like they had a plan. They're like, well, we'll just have to roll up our sleeves and get back to work. They, in a million years, they were not expecting the public reaction that actually happened. Uh, and then there are like organizations like the New York organization that in a million years, they did not expect to even be asked what people should do next. I mean, it's the other side of the country. They didn't think that anyone in New York was going to even want to have a meeting about Prop 8. So that public reaction really caught the grass tops by surprise that there was a grassroots anything um, was shocking to them. And so they had nothing prepared. Well, that's kind of telling to me in and of itself that they weren't thinking, how do we get people involved after a loss? I mean, it seems like that's exactly the right time to try to energize people because of that motivating anger. Mm hmm. Yeah, um, there was nothing. I mean, and also the attention was just so squarely focused on the campaign that suddenly the campaign is over and they're like, oh, uh, we didn't really have uh, anything planned after that. Uh, one of the excuses that I heard from an organization member was um, that the organizations were not providing any guidance to the public at that time because they were just so tired from the campaign, which is not a satisfying answer. I mean, I don't doubt that that was true, but it was not what the public wanted to hear. Sure. When you look at civil rights movements across history, you don't really see a moment where there's a loss and the leaders are like, oh, but it was so exhausting. Can we just go to Palm Springs? <laughs> yeah. What were these Rosie O'Donnell cruises like? Oh, um, uh, quite lovely from all accounts. Uh, lots of families. Uh, Gavin describes a really pleasant atmosphere. You know, everyone was welcome and it was a really nice family, all ages kind of thing. And you'd, I think you'd go from New York down to Florida and back or thereabouts. I don't know if Rosie O'Donnell herself was present. I think that I think she was seldom seen in these. She wasn't the skipper. She, oh my god! If it was an episode of The Love Boat, like with Rosie O'Donnell, and I don't know who else would be adjacent to that. Uh, for some reason, Kathy Griffin seems to be like a. Uh, who who are the guest stars on the Rosie O'Donnell episode of The Love Boat? Anderson <laughs> Cooper, Kathy Griffin, um, Charles Bush, and Charles Nelson Riley. Why not? <laughs> So there's some necromancy involved. Absolutely. Uh, no, he's he's a recent, recently deceased, isn't he? Still. I'm not sure the duration of... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you don't have to... There's not too much necromancy. Just, just <laughs> light a, necromancy. A little light necromancy. That's one of the features of the cruise. <laughs> but you're, you're, you're peaking the audio. <laughs> cover your mouth when you laugh, because <laughs> listeners are going to complain. No, cover your butt when you talk. Did the cruise take you to the island from Exit to Eden? It took you to the island of Lesbos. <laughs> well, it's enough time in Lesbos. Let's get back to the great state of New York. Following the loss in New York, Jeff Cook went ahead and married his partner anyway, right? Yeah. And he said, we don't recognize the power of the government to determine the validity of our marriage. Yes, I thought you might have some thoughts on that. Well, who does determine the validity of a marriage? Ah, that's an excellent question, isn't it? Um, and I think this is one of those areas where people are using words in different ways, and it's very important to define our terms. Uh, when he says the validity of a marriage, what I think he's referring to there is the union as they conceive of it that they share. So from a civil perspective, yeah, well, of course, the government is the one who has to decide whether they get tax benefits or whatever. But um, if you think of marriage as an act, an overlapping of intentions between two people, then why on earth would you need the government or a church or any other authority involved? It's something personal that you decide for yourself and something that you 
engage in with the cooperation of whatever community you deem fit, uh, which for most people is their family and some friends. That's who determines the validity of the marriage, the couple themselves. And the meaning of the marriage is provided in this case by uh, their overlapping of affection for each other and their joining of their families and their social circles. So why is a government license involved? Well, surely you need a government license for, for the civil stuff. Government is there to uh, to regulate stuff like oh the taxes and the um, the hospital visitation and inheritance and uh, child custody. I mean, there's going to be disputes at some point in a marriage, and you need some sort of agreed upon framework, right? An agreed upon framework, yes. Why is that a government function? Who else? How how else are you going to have a uniform enforcement of how uh, disputes in a marriage are handled? Sure, but you were just saying that the validity of a marriage comes from the people involved in it determining what the marriage is and what it means to them and how they're going to conduct themselves in it. And if that's the case, then it sounds like uniformity is the last thing that characterizes a marriage. A marriage is unique to the individuals involved in it. Yeah, well, there's different parts of a marriage, right? There's there's the love stuff. I mean, the government has no interest in, in regulating that because how on earth could they? But then there's there's the legal stuff. That's where the government can can jump in and say this is our business now. I mean the the, the couple stuff, the love stuff. I mean this is why marriage is such a fraught word because marriage means different things in different contexts. Sometimes it means uh, the lovey feelings that we have for each other, and other times it means the amount of alimony that I'm required to pay. These are wildly different things, and we only have one word, marriage, to encompass all of that stuff. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a word for a stable, long-term relationship that is entered into mutually uh, and with great affection and seriousness, and a different word for the suite of laws and regulations surrounding the adjudication of conflict between two people? I suppose so, but in that in that case where we have two different words, does that mean it would be two different things, that you could be married without any kind of government involvement and then and then at some point in the future you would solicit a license or some kind of, of certificate from the government yeah i think that's that's one way of doing it and that's really it's get messy doesn't it uh and that's what gays had to do for a long time i mean they would have that private ceremony that was just between them and then there was no option to go to the government so you know when a gay couple was like we got married you'd just be like oh okay you had some sort of ceremony uh and that's it because the government doesn't get involved one way or the other well, from the tone of your voice, it sounds like you're like, oh, yeah, right, you got married. So I've got the, the scorn in the voice because those ceremonies were also a reminder of inequality. You know, anyone could have a ceremony. Straight couples could have a ceremony, too. But when gay couples did it, built into that was the reminder that you're doing this in a way that's different from what straight couples are able to do. And there's a social stigma attached to who you are and what you're allowed to, to be considered by, by the government. So toward the end of your conversation with Jenny... Um, she said, it's about a greater issue than marriage. It's not even about marriage. It's about having the right to have marriage. And if you want to get married, you can. And if not, great. Isn't that remarkable? She's one of the only people who expressed that to me. That really sums up the freedom to marry for me. That it's not about marriage at all. It is simply about erasing inferiority and institutionalized stigma. Um, the two people who I can think of who have expressed that are Jenny, right there, and then, not for this book, but Angela Davis, who uh, gave a speech that I heard uh, for the Harvey Milk Club in San Francisco, where she talked about uh, recognizing the moral imperative of equality while also being radically critical of the institution. Didn't uh, Evan Wolfson talk about that in his oh, original? Yeah. Sure, sure. Early, early, early. I mean, um, that, uh, you know, in the 80s, in his, in his thesis, he wrote about how marriage, uh, marriage equality is, is a... Is a vehicle towards civil uh, equality, towards a more social equality. That, uh, you know, the, the thing that defines us as a separate class is who we fall in love with. And if you erase the stigma around who we fall in love with, this, the legal stigma around who we fall in love with, then the social stigma starts to fall apart as well. Now, is it that people aren't actually thinking along those lines, or that the people who are thinking along those lines know that that is a hard sell, if not an impossible sell, and so instead they say love wins? Because love wins, to me, is gibberish. That is not a position at all. You know, I mean, that's equivalent to saying moms are nice. Like, it's just such pandering to an emotion that everyone can agree on. Sure, but I mean, if you want to talk about, like, the political philosophy of, uh, of a legal movement, uh, I don't think that's going to be terribly accessible to people who happen to see a sign in a parade. So, love wins is a nice slogan, and it makes people feel good, and it, it, it is a symbol of all the hard work that happens behind the scenes. I mean, love wins. Love clearly wins the PR war. 
Love wins is a lovely winning slogan. And the same with no hate, which was yes. a, which was reductive nonsense too. <laughs> oh no, I don't know because I think there's there is a statement in there. To me, no hate is meaningful in that you're saying that I'm making a conscious decision to accept other people. I don't think that many people saw it that way. I think most people saw it as sort of a, a, a vanity project where they could just say, oh, I'm part of this big tribe of people who's mad about Prop 8. Right. But the thing that's lovely to me about no hate is um, that it had the potential to signal an open-mindedness. It, at its best, I think that's what it was. I don't know that it, in practice that's what it wound up being. At its best, I think that's true. I think at its most common, it was, I can have the same picture that famous people have with some tape over my mouth. Sure, sure. Airbrush to hell. I loved it. Do you remember when how people would pose with props? Like it became such a vanity thing. It was like the list of tags that you assign yourself on Facebook where people would like, "Oh, I'm here's my no hate picture and I'm holding a trumpet." Or <laughs> yes, yeah. That people would just hold whatever whatever other things whatever other other signifiers define them as a person. So, I mean, it was so clear that this was just a way of someone saying, this is how I'm constructing my identity. Like, literally, I'm bringing in the other things with which I construct my identity. Yeah, it did a lot of good. Sure. sure. Or, or, or did it? It did. It actually did. It raised a lot of money for LGBT centers. Uh, there were a lot of no-hate fundraisers. Uh, and it raised uh, money for uh, other causes and individuals. Indeed. I don't know. It's still going. So, uh, if you can believe that, can you believe no hate is still happening? What was the reason for the tape over the mouth? Uh, it was supposed to represent uh, how we're uh, blind to the abuses of the system. Then why isn't the tape over the eyes? All right, move along, Betty. <laughs> is that really why the tape is over the no, mouth? No, no, oh, no. Oh, why is the tape no, over the I'm mouth? I making a Seinfeld reference. Oh. The tape is over the mouth uh, to symbolize how our voices have been silenced. Please do not ask any questions, uh, <laughs> because that statement does not make any sense. But that is how it was explained to me. And uh, Losing an election meant that our voices had been silenced? Yes, yes, that's what it means. Yeah. So, okay, D- let's go with that. Sure. How? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's why the the tape over the mouth always kind of irked me. Like, we should be shouting right now, not taping our mouths up. I don't know what that would look like in a in a in a photograph. I don't know. Maybe everyone should have had a loudspeaker. Maybe their mouths should have been photoshopped to be enormous, like in a Missy Elliott video. Sure, sure. Like in Julia Roberts's real life. <laughs> At one point in this chapter, you say that your need to have me propose to you was starting to wane. Mm-hmm. I assume that's just because you were getting bored with me. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, that was around the time that I started dating other men. Oh, I haven't told you that. Yeah. No, no, no. I, that um, I, I started to feel less like there was something wrong with us that that we weren't married. I, I may never have told you this, but there were times that like we went to a restaurant or something, and I would think, what would it be like if James just got down on one knee at the end of this meal and proposed to me? And I would kind of fantasize about that, but then also fantasize about how I would then have to take you to the hospital because it would mean that you're having some sort of stroke <laughs> if you had actually done something so insane mm-hmm. uh, because it's so unlike you. There was a comment, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember where it was. It might have been on Amazon or on iTunes, asking why you didn't propose to me. Yeah, that was a, a question from Russell on Amazon in, in one of the reviews that was left. And the answer is simple. It's because I knew what you would, you, you would say. I, I asked you at one point, I, th- I think we were someplace public. I said, what would you do if I proposed to you right now? Kind of jokingly, but also kind of experimentally. And you said something like, I would walk right on out of here. And uh, so I was like, okay, well, note to self. Uh, now is probably not a good time to propose. Not because uh, I want to marry and I fear rejection. But uh, if James does not feel like he would say yes to this, then clearly there's something going on in our relationship that needs to be addressed before we get to the proposal point. Because I feel like a proposal should only happen when you know what the answer is going to be and you know that it's going to be a yes. It's very lawyerly. You I don't s- ask a question you don't know the answer to. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I suppose. I mean, the the proposal is, is essentially like a... a you know, a mutual, you know, the, the a timing. short destruction, a, a short destruction. Yes. No, but the timing, you know, the timing can be a surprise, but it's something nice that you do for the other party, not something that you use to entrap them. If you were to have proposed seriously, and the answer was no, how would you have taken that? I would have been pretty crushed. But this is a hypothetical that is not really useful to think about because I don't think I ever got close to proposing to you. I don't think I, I, I don't think I even got to the point of like even realistically considering what would the steps be to that. 
Well, I'm thinking more in terms of calling the question or forcing an ultimatum, which oh. is maybe not something you would do. No. But just, you know, I, 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 think, I think bundled up in Russell's question is, if it's something you really wanted, why didn't you just put it on the table and force me to react? Because you had already made your position clear. I mean, it was it was obvious to me that this was not something that you wanted, uh, and I could have forced I could have forced an ultimatum, which would have been disastrous. Me saying, "If you don't marry me, I'm leaving," which I, it's kind of telling that I didn't do that because I was not willing to walk away from this relationship, even though we weren't married. So clearly, there was something good here that was keeping me around, aside from the the promise that maybe someday I'll be able to change your mind. So you know, I. I could have I could have said, uh, are we going to do this or not? What's your final answer? But I think I already knew what your final answer was going to be. So why? Why do that? Fair enough. And to me, that suggests that you prioritize the relationship over a marriage, which I feel really good about. Yeah, I, I think I prioritize the relationship above all other possible symbols of the relationship. It's the actual day-to-day stuff that we do for each other. Uh, like after this podcast is done recording, I'm going to ask you to make me dinner. And uh, I, hopefully you'll say yes to that because that's the kind of thing that you sometimes do. That's that's something that, that is meaningful to me, that we can ask each other for favors and we do nice things for each other. You ask me for dinner and I'm going to take a flying leap off the balcony. <laughs> That's uh, that's actually my plan. That's how I, that's how I plan to do away with you. I'll just ask for for too much until you've had enough, and you, <laughs> you dive on out of here. Well, since we're on the subject of Russell's review, he also had the question: Why did you include the history of Doma, but not the two cases that brought it down? That's a good question, um, and there are certainly lots of great stories to tell about uh, Windsor, which is the the 2013 case, and uh, Lawrence, which is the 2004 case, which together form the basis of the dismantling of Doma. Um, and uh, yeah, this is a this book is about the personal stories and the evolution of our understanding of marriage, and uh, you know, there's literally billions and billions and billions of stories. This is not a book is not meant to be an exhaustive accounting of, of all of the personal stories. Uh, and so hopefully uh, someone will write that story as well. In fact, they have. Robbie Kaplan has written a wonderful book uh, about uh, the Edie Windsor case. So there are some great resources out there for, for learning more both about the, the people involved and for also about the, the legal strategy and minutiae behind those cases. But, uh, you know, those are very complicated legal stories. And that's not what this book is. This book is about the, all the personal stuff. And it's sort of a snapshot of, of the lives of a couple of people who happen to intersect with this evolution, this social evolution in the understanding of what marriage is and who gets to decide what marriage is. Uh, so uh, I, I absolutely recommend going out and finding uh, Robbie Kaplan's book and uh, others like uh, uh, Mark Solomon has written a, a really lovely book about uh, his work on marriage. Oh, and there's also Don't Tell Me to Wait by Carrie Elleveld. Uh, so lots of great stories out there that really go into detail on these on these cases. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I see this book as having a complementary role in the history rather than a comprehensive role. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not by any stretch of the imagination, uh, you know, covering all this is not a list of the most important stories. This is a this is a uh, overview of, of a process of evolution that happened uh, in who gets to choose what marriage is and how we do that. And to me, it seems like part of it is also that the big stuff is going to get covered. I mean, you don't have to worry about that. You just wait a few years, all the big cases, all the big players are going to be covered in some way, whether it's in a full book or a good chunk of a book. But people like Molly McKay might not have their story told in those... Sure, sure. Or Juan and Tim or Jenny Canelos. I mean, these are people whose stories are not going to be part of the, the grand narrative of the most important people of the movement. Uh, but they were part of an important process nonetheless. Uh, you know, next chapter, we, we have someone, um, Mary Margaret Haugen, who's a legislator here in Washington, who played a really important role and um, paid a price for it. And uh, I think it's important for us to note people like that, who are maybe not going to be, you know, they're not going to have a big plaque put up in, in their honor, but... Uh, Progress would not have been possible without those people working down in the trenches. And I think their stories kind of speak to the times in which they happened and that they're, they're kind of a snapshot of a moment, yeah. more so than trying to describe the entire mechanics of what was going on. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, that's absolutely right. To, to answer Russell's question, um, this is this is a book about uh, some folks who happen to witness history happening, uh, and it's not a dissection of how that historical change actually happened. It's it's what it looked like to, to have been there to witness it. 
Well, those questions from Russell were terrific. And if people have more questions for you, uh, where can they reach you? You can reach me at Matt Baum on Twitter, and you can also leave a review on the iTunes store. Ooh, here comes a review now. Uh, it's from Guy in Alameda. Wonderfully interesting, especially the early marriage equality work done in the 70s that I wasn't fully aware of. A couple of movies that came out before Philadelphia that are really good are Parting Glances and A Longtime Companion. Yes, uh, we, we talked about um, some of those um, 80s movies in an earlier chapter, uh, which is why he, he brought them up. Um, I also have a video, as it happens, about the movie Longtime Companion. You can find that on my YouTube channel. That's at youtube.com slash Matt Baum. You can also just search YouTube for Longtime Companion. You'll, you'll find my video. It's in the top of the search results right now, which is uh, kind of nice. Longtime Companion is how I used to refer to you at work. That's true. I remember that. And it was uh, very unclear if you were talking about a human being or a horse. <laughs> Can't you be both? Sure, sure. Oh, only. Well, uh, I'm trying to think of some horse segue. That sounds like an amazing invention. <laughs> segue for horses? Yeah, somebody get on that, please. Literally get on that. Get on a horse on a segue. And That's let your horse long. on a segue take you to next week's episode. <laughs> yeah, next week's episode, we jump back across the country again for some more victories. Uh, we're going to see some conservatives come around uh, to marriage equality in Washington State. Uh, big, big win that has the potential to immediately turn into an even bigger loss. So some, some cliffhanging to be had next week. I'm at the edge of my seat because of the awkward way we sit when we record this. <laughs> well, if you'd like to take the plunge off that cliff before next week, you can buy the book on Amazon. Yes, uh, and uh, please do leave a review uh, and visit me in, in some of my other venues where I have stuff. I've got The Sewers of Paris, my other podcast, where I talk about uh, revealing stories about the entertainment that changed the lives of gay men. I've had some really wonderful Halloween-themed guests uh, this month in uh, October. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel where I talk about LGBT issues and entertainment. It's youtube.com slash Matt Baum. Big, 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 big thanks to Barney Frank for talking to me this week. Uh, we'll have him back on the show again uh, in upcoming episodes. Uh, and until next time, friends... By the power vested in me by the internet, I now pronounce this podcast over. <laughs> <laughs>